if you're facing the page and nothing is coming or you're out of ideas or you're just not sure how to get through a certain part in your writing, back away from it and try to try to do an exercise. Would your book, program, product, or organization be of interest to the other listeners of Fierce Woman Writing? Advertise on the show and reach smart, creative people who love writing in books, just like you. For more info, there's links in the show notes to the contact page of my website or slide into my DMs on Instagram. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, the podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Melissa Falavino. Melissa Falavino is a writer, editor, and teacher whose debut essay collection, Tomboyland, is out now. The former senior editor of Poets and Writers magazine, Melissa's published essays and interviews in Bitch, The Millions, Prairie Schooner, Diagram, Midwestern Gothic, Essay Daily, Isthmus, and Green Mountains Review, among others, and received a notable selection in Best American Essays 2016. Born and raised in small-town Wisconsin, she currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, and teaches in the graduate writing program at Sarah Lawrence College. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? Exactly the opposite of what I have in Brooklyn, which is quiet, um, solitude, um, and um, ideally somewhere with like an outdoor space and a little bit of fresh air. Um, I love to write sort of with a view of trees, um, outdoors on on a deck or a patio or even in a park if I can. Um, But really, the most important is just a small, quiet space that I can just hunker um, down into um, for hours. Why do you write? I write, I think, because I have to. And I I feel like a lot of people probably say that. But um, I've gone through periods in my life wherein I didn't, you know, I couldn't or, um, you know, I didn't I didn't have the ability to. And I. I just always have the pull and um, I always come back to that pull, even, you know, after a period of time when I'm not writing. So I feel like that pull has always been there and um, ever since I was young and it hasn't gone away. So I keep answering. What are your best writing tips? If you can write every day. Um, And I used to get a little bit annoyed when people would say that because I didn't really have the ability to. And so it comes with a caveat that you might not be able to, but, um, you know, maybe you have a job and a family and other obligations that preclude it. But if you can, even if it's just sitting down for five minutes on your commute or, you know, 
in your car when you're waiting to pick up your kid, um, in your journal or, or whatever, whatever space you can carve out, even if it's just those five minutes and it's a journal, try to write every day because it's a muscle. And the more you work it out, the better you'll be able to use it. And the more it will feel like a daily practice and a practice that you can't do without. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? You know, probably related to the daily practice, um, you know, just try, if you're facing the page and nothing is coming or you're out of ideas or you're just not sure how to get through a certain part in your writing, back away from it and try to try to do an exercise. What I really like to do is, this is something that I do with my students all the time, I give them a really kind of basic objective exercise. So lately, because we're all stuck inside um, and have been for a long time, um, I've been focused on observation. So like, look at a thing, look at an object in your room and try to describe it and use details to describe it. And don't worry about implications. Don't worry about memories. Don't think about anything larger than the details of that object. Just write the object, describe the object. And it's kind of amazing to me that if you if you return to those like very basic practices of description, um, of free write in that way, um, what can come of that? What about editing and revising tips? Editing and revising, I think, is different for everyone. Um, I am one of those people who like I know that a lot of writers find this horrifying, but I kind of edit as I go. So I'm not a draft a whole book, do a second draft, do a third draft. Um, I really edit as I go. And so I think it's different for everybody. Um, If you are a person who functions that way, I encourage it. But if you're not, just get the thing out and then do a rewrite and don't focus on it. I think editing and revising can be great and productive and generative for people whose brains function like that, like mine. You know, I'll I'll work on a sentence over and over and then something will click, you know, but I think for other people that doesn't work. So if that sounds arduous or somehow terrible, (laughs) I would just say sit down and, you know, get the writing out and then return to it after some time for the revising. You know, I've worked as an editor for a really long time. And I think that that has influenced my editorial eye and, and made it a lot sharper Um, and so I think, you know, reading other people's work and offering sort of feedback and edits, maybe you have a writing group, maybe you have one person who you share writing with, which I highly encourage read their writing and maybe even do a line edit, um, offer feedback, that kind of stuff, because that will help you sharpen your own editorial skills and will allow you to return to your own writing and see like, okay, this is a superfluous line or, this can be condensed or this needs to be tightened. Um, It really helps you work out that concision muscle, which is really important. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? That varies widely. Like this year, I don't think I have submitted. Well, that's not true. I've submitted maybe two pieces this year, Um, but Last year and the previous years, that number was much higher. You know, I think having a book coming out, um, I'm, I'm working on trying to place excerpts of the book. So it's a little different. Um, but in 
you know, previous years as I was working toward the book, I was probably submitting on average to about a dozen publications a year. I didn't submit that much. Um, I just had like a, a highly selective number of publications that I was reaching toward and I would shoot for those. Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? Ooh, I love this question. I, and I could probably list so many, but um, I'll stick to a few that have been on my mind recently. One of my favorite women writers, um, and actually uh, who's a good friend of mine and blurred my book, um, is Melissa Phoebos, another Melissa. Um, she has a new book of essays coming out next year called Girlhood. Um, I think that's coming out in March 2021, and it's going to be amazing. So I highly recommend that. Let's see, other other sort of recent books and books coming out. Alison Stein has a novel coming out called Road Out of Winter that's coming out in September. And that's like a dystopian novel about a woman, um, a young woman growing up um, in Appalachia um, who's poor and uh, she's a bisexual character. And that's all I'll tell you, but I think that's going to be great. Let's see. Sam Irby um, is one of my favorite Midwestern writers. Um, she has a new book out called Wow, No Thank You, which is really funny. If you've never read Sam Irby, she's just like across the board, makes you laugh out loud. Um, I love her and I'm super grateful for her, especially now um, when laughing is so necessary. So that's probably, those are probably my top three right now. And where can listeners find you online? Um, I have a website. It's www.melissafalavino.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Melissa Falavino and on Instagram at ML Falavino. Melissa, would you read some of your work for us now? You bet. I would be happy to. Okay, what I'm going to read is from Tomboy Land. It's a book of essays. And the excerpt that I'm going to be reading is from the near title essay called Tomboy. Um, and there's not much you need to know about it. It's, uh, it's a sort of interrogation into the words we use to describe our bodies and our sexualities and our gender identities. Um, and uh, there's a lot of history and sort of cultural um, influence and literary influence. And this is an excerpt from that essay, Tomboy. Growing up, I was a tomboy. It's what people called me and what I eventually started calling myself. At first, I resisted the word. I knew when people called me tomboy, it was meant to call out my difference, that it set me apart from the other girls in my small Midwestern town. And back then, I didn't want to be different. On more than one occasion, I recall my small self, fists on hips, insisting, I'm a tom girl, and campaigning to get the word to stick. But I also secretly loved the word boy attached to me. I played with the boys and acted like a boy. I fought and spat and swore and yelled, climbed trees and built forts and splashed in the mud. I played sports and rode bikes and banged up my knees. I hated anything deemed girly, rejected dresses and dolls in the color pink. When I was in second grade, I insisted my mother let me cut my hair short and spiky like all the other boys. After weeks of begging, she relented, with the caveat that I leave it long in the back. 
She cut around my ears and I sculpted my spikes with gel, the rest of my hair cascading down my back, the first of several horrible mullets. On a deeper level, though, I often felt like a boy. I often wished I was a boy. Sometimes I even prayed to be a boy, pleading with a God I wasn't even sure I believed in, that I might wake up the following day and everything would be different. Being a girl made me angry. It felt like a curse to be a girl, a cruel injustice that I had to be anything other than a boy. I fought with the boys who called me girl and with the girls who called me boy. On the school bus, when the older boys called me beast and spat in my hair, I spat back. I plucked the head off the only Barbie I owned, her impossibly proportioned and headless body serving as the one thing I understood a woman's body to be, the object of male desire. Alone in the bathtub, I smashed the green muscled bodies of my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles action figures against the smooth, pale skin of my headless plastic woman. In my childhood fantasy, she fulfilled the role of girlfriend to Leonardo, the manliest hero of the sewer-dwelling mutant quartet. Their romance was always narrated from Leo's perspective. His repressed sexual energies expended deep below the surface of the water, among the bubbles, out of sight even from me. One day at the Montessori school I attended for preschool and kindergarten in my small Wisconsin town, my friends and I played outside in the sun. It was hot, and the boys ran around with their shirts off, so I took mine off too. Girls need to wear their shirts, Melissa, a teacher said. Instead of putting my shirt back on, I climbed to the roof of the school. I have no idea how I got there, but in my memory, there I stand, shirtless and defiant, bare feet on the hot slate shingles, waving my t-shirt triumphantly in the air and refusing to come down. In one version of the memory, I whip the shirt above my head like a lasso and launch it to the ground, laughing maniacally at my own dissidence. However it happened, what I know for sure is, at least for a little while, I stayed there, a veritable boy of summer, bare-chested in the sun. In rural spaces, girls grow up on the land. We play in the fields and the forest. We climb trees. We help our families garden and farm. We join the Future Farmers of America or the 4-H Club or the Girl Scouts, where outdoor skills are encouraged and honed. Where I come from, women are strong. We're built like barns, built to work. We might look more masculine, not least because we tend to do more traditionally masculine work. This is true of many of the women in my family, including my late grandmother, my mother, and several of my aunts, almost all of whom have worked factory jobs or service jobs or both. I worked these kinds of jobs too. I started working when I was 12, helping my parents take inventories of rural gas stations crouched on our hands and knees in small, dusty convenience stores across the state. We counted everything on those shelves by hand. My parents, who are now in their late 60s, still do this work. As a teenager, I worked on the floor of a discount clothing store, work both of my parents did for much of their lives, and as a waitress and bartender at a pub in my hometown. I tended bar and waited tables in college too, and later worked as a barista to pay my way through school. 
I was the first in my immediate family to get a degree. Where I come from, we don't necessarily go to college. We might not have the money. We might not have the interest. We might have a family farm or business to take over. We might develop a skilled trade instead. We might join a union and stay in it for life. If we do go to college, we might go to technical and two-year programs for such trades. And we dress and present in a way that makes those jobs more efficient. Middle-aged and older women in particular tend toward the androgynous, with close-cropped hair and functional, less-than-fashionable clothing. The slow cross-country crawl of fashion is a factor in this too. Not only do trends make their way to the flyover states at a snail's pace, a realization I made when I moved to New York in 2009 and didn't own a single pair of skinny jeans, but sometimes they never make it at all. And if they do, few rural Midwesterners have the money or time to care. It's no wonder, then, when people think of the tomboy, they often think of a Midwesterner, of a boyish little girl running around the prairies of middle America like Laura Ingalls Wilder. They think of a farmer, of a woman in coveralls fixing a faucet. They think of a bartender serving Miller Lite to construction workers at happy hour. Tomboys exist in other parts of the country, of course, in rural and urban spaces alike, as do women who work back-breaking jobs that keep them on their feet all day. But when I think of the rural Midwest, I think of it as a place where a girl's body is uniquely connected to the land in which she was born, where girls hunt and fish and fight and don't always shed their masculine characteristics as they get older. When I think of the Midwest, a place whose boundaries and borders are contentious, a place given so many different names, from the Great Plains to the Great Lakes states to the upper Midwest, I think of a place that transcends boundaries, that defies definition, a body that holds within it a multitude of identities. When I think of my Midwest, the heartland, the hinterland, a place of farmland and factories, of forests and rivers and lakes, I think of it as tomboy land. Thank you for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting Melissa's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. We can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. Here's Melissa. Okay, so I mentioned earlier trees. I have a a deep connection to trees. I love trees. I have a branch of a tree tattooed on my arm. Um, And so lately, I've been thinking a lot about trees, in part because I'm working on a novel now that's set in the Wisconsin woods. And in part because trees are just super important to me. And I guess I've been trying to channel them during this time of isolation to keep me steady and grounded, you know, when nothing is steady or grounded. We don't have many trees here in my part of Brooklyn. A few years ago, we had this beautiful tree in our yard that got cut down. But there's one left right outside my living room window. And it's one of the things that's bringing me joy in this time. It's where I read in the morning, every morning. I I retreat to this little chair by the window with my morning coffee and read a chapter or two of a book uh, before I get to work for the day. 
And since the pandemics hit, um, since we, you know, New York went on lockdown, I've, I've watched it bloom. So in March, it was still uh, barren and, and now it's fully bloomed and all the weeks and months in between, I watched it bud and then blossom. And then as if overnight, it was fully green and bloomed. And now it provides this perfect canopy outside my window. And so I'm thinking about this tree and I'm thinking about life and I'm thinking about the things that carry on in the wake of, you know, death and fear and darkness. And I've recently been reading a book called Limber, which I highly recommend. It's an essay collection by Angela Pelster, and it's got a lyric essay collection about trees. So for this prompt, I'd invite you to write about a tree. Find the tree nearest you. If you have a close view of it outside your window, that's fine. Um, but ideally, I'd encourage you to go outside, you know, if you can, safely, and stand or sit down next to the tree with a notebook or journal. If you don't have one in your yard, go for a walk if need be. Find one on your block or a nearby park, where, wherever it's safe to go and be for a little while by yourself. If you don't have safe access to a tree or any trees right now, think of a tree from your past. Maybe there was a tree in the yard of the house where you grew up. Maybe it was the woods. Either way, describe the tree. First, using only sensory descriptions. What does it look like, sound like, smell like, feel like? Touch the leaves and bark if you can and describe them. What do the leaves sound like in the wind? Pay close attention, really observe it and take it in. Catalog as many details as you can. This can be a free write, this can be a list. Just write down everything that you think of as you observe the tree. Then, second part, add a little speculation. How old do you think this tree is? What kind of life do you think it had? What has it seen? Who has walked by it? Who has stood under it? What life has surrounded it? Then, part three. Write a memory or scene associated with either this tree or a tree of your past or trees of your past. When you were a kid, did you climb trees, build tree forts? Did you go hiking in the woods? Did you ever get lost or run away? Write yourself into a scene with a tree and see where it takes you. Don't you just love that imagery of a preschooler peeling her shirt off and climbing to the roof in defiance? It reminds me of when I was in elementary school and I had a confrontation with a sexist gym teacher that served as the topic for one of my college application essays. I wonder what would happen if I tried to write that story again now, over 20 years later. Sounds like something fun to play with. It's been great talking to all of you who are following my attempts to weave my personal writing practice into my daily life over the past few weeks. After the Melissa Valentine episode, where she said that she puts her writing first every day, I realized that my writing hardly ever even made it onto my list. So I've been showing up on Instagram Live whenever I can find a few spare minutes and doing a quick write-along with anyone who's watching. I love how in today's interview with Melissa Falovino, she says that carving out just five minutes, if that's all you can get, is enough to have a consistent writing practice and exercise that muscle. Some days that's definitely all I can find, but I'm so glad that I'm making the space for it amidst all the other demands on my time. Thanks for all the messages and conversations around the challenges we share in finding the space for our writing. I love talking to you about it. And thanks so much for listening this week. 
Would you help me out and write a review or leave a star rating on the podcast platform you use to listen? This helps other people find the show and helps me reach more writers. I'd really appreciate it. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Women Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.